Open your Bibles with me this morning once again to the book of Psalms, and I'm going to read to you this morning Psalm 128. Nice little short psalm, but so packed full of gospel truths and theology and the nature of the blessings of God to those who fear the Lord. And so the psalmist writes, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine, In the very heart of your house, your children, like olive plants, all around your table, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. O Father, we ask that you add your presence to this, the proclamation of your holy word. Amen. Another song of ascent. Remember we talked about last week, Solomon's Psalm 127, a song of ascent. They're walking up the hill to Zion, to the temple to pray. And so they would sing their way there, as we said last week. I'm not opposed to the opinion, although the Bible doesn't note that this is also a song of Solomon. There is a tradition that would say that. Um, Spurgeon disagrees, and I hesitate to disagree with Spurgeon, um, But uh, it seems like this is the sequel to Psalm 127 to me, or an addition to it, an addendum, if you will. Both are about the blessings of family life and worshiping God, the blessings of God, the sovereignty of God. And so we read in verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. I'll say right at the outset that walking in his ways is evidence of the fear of the Lord. It's intertwined. It's the same thing. It's one of those Hebrew couplets where they say something and say something else and they both mean the same thing. But I submit to you today that the fear of God is the natural state of every man who is born. It's the natural state of man to recognize that there is deity over us. And that to eradicate that fear, that knowledge from your consciousness takes a willful, concerted effort. You know, I think we think when children are born that we have to teach them about God. And we do, but we don't have to teach them about his existence. It is my belief, and I plan to show you through the scriptures, that people are born with an understanding that they, that they had a creator. And I think they have to unlearn that, not learn it. And so Paul wrote of this very thing to the Romans when he said that the condition of natural man in the earth is this, is this very thing. And so he writes, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. He's talking about every person who was born. They knew God, but they chose not to glorify him as God. In other words, they unlearned the fear of the Lord. And they forgot to be thankful, he says. The apostle tells us how this is accomplished, and I would caution you all to beware of such things and this type of thinking. And so Paul goes on. He says they, all these 
people who uh, turned away from the knowledge of God, they changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man or birds or beasts or creeping things. And of course, he's talking about idolatry. He's talking about pagan idolatry and placing upon something other than God the attributes of God and giving praises that are only due to God to other spirits or imagined deities, you see. And so he concludes, and he says of such people that they exchanged the truth for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Notice the definite article. They exchanged the truth. He doesn't say a truth as though there are many truths. He says the truth. Friends, in the final analysis, when you stand before the judge of the world, Jesus Christ, you will know at that moment there really is only one truth. And there is a lie that assaults that truth. And don't exchange the truth for the lie. And the truth is you are created. You are created by a creator deity who made you in the loving image of himself. And the lie is that somehow man came about through other means. He developed from lower forms of life. He started out as a single-celled organism in amoeba, in the slimy pools of a preordained earth. You know, when we read about our Creator, there's nothing there yet. Right? You remember the man that tested God? The man that tested God said, I can... I can do what you do. I can create life too. And so he got down and he started forming man from the dirt. And God said, oh no, get your own dirt. No, nothing was here. He created all there is ex nihilo, out of nothing. By fiat, decree. He called existence into being and you with it. And every man is born with some kind of natural awareness of this, according to the Apostle Paul. But yet, we learn to turn away from the truth that is embedded in us. They exchanged the truth for the lie and worship and served other things. So beware of cults of personality. Beware of cults of personality. Beware of hero worship, of celebrity worship, of self-worship, all of which run rampant in our society. I want to say, and I know this is insulting to some people, but I've, I've said this my, my whole uh, ministerial career. Let me say it again. It always amazes me when people, particularly grown men, run around with somebody else's name on their jersey. That just always amazes me. Brady, you know, <laughs> Juba. You know, I'm like, that isn't who you are. Don't have this celebrity worship. And I'm not saying that's true worship, but it can lead to that kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't let, I, I told my boys not to wear that stuff. And uh, to this day, they don't do that. Um, so beware of that kind of worship, celebrity worship. We are a country that loves to lift up deity, to deify certain, I don't know, entertainers, uh, even politicians, and beware of that. Um, and certainly we lift ourselves up and become our own idols. And so here the psalmist tells us that the fear of God is the basis of all blessing and happiness in life. 
Who would think that fear begets happiness? But it does, and it's declared all throughout the Scriptures. But yet I have to tell you, this idea of fearing the Lord amounts to one of the most controversial statements of our time. Our snowflake society does not want a God who's awesome and fearful. Well, that's the kind of God I want. I don't want a God that's just like me or like my kindly aunt. I want a God who's powerful. I want the God that I see in Scripture. And so that this fearing of the Lord is so controversial, even among Christians. I'm quite certain that we can find Christians and non-Christians alike who take issue with the statement. For our society has put fear among the negative energies on the scale of emotional responses. We see fear as a negative thing. Uh, Trust is good. We love trust. Hope. Everybody has hope. Keep hope alive. Everybody likes hope. Even faith is good. Doesn't matter what it's in for our society. Remember, your faith is only so strong as the object of your faith, you know. But all these things, according to our, you know, politically correct society we have, are good things, but fear is bad. And they put fear on the negative side. All this, rather, if this is truly the case, then how are the scriptures so full of this language of fearing God? Remember the word of the one of the thieves on the cross. His very last words when he recognized his death was impending. It was coming upon him at that moment. And he said to the, to the other thief, he looked around the Lord from his cross and said to the other thief, thief who cursed Jesus, he said, do you not even fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation. In other words, if you're not going to fear God now, when are you going to? The Apostle Peter gives us this directive. He writes, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. From a mere two examples, we can readily see that fear of God comes upon a person when he's either looking into the reality of his own death. That a lot of times is when the fear of God comes on us. We realize, boy, I really should have given this death thing a little more thought. We can see by Peter's commandment that we are to regard all people we're to regard other Christians and the king with certain levels of respect. But fear is reserved for God alone. Remember the, uh, or rather, I'm going to resist the impulse that so many teachers of Scripture have today, which is to try to lessen or change the genuine quality of fear to make it more palatable to human tastes. I don't think I'll do that. Because I don't see anyone in the Bible who's concerned about that. I'll not call it reverence, though it produces reverence. Certainly fear produces reverence. But, I, but it's not reverence, it's something else. I'll not call it devotion, though true devotion emerges from the fear of God. How could you not fear such an awesome being as God, who called you into existence and could call you out? We just sang it. One little word will fell him. So the fact is, friends, that fear, when you encounter it in Scripture, in Scripture rather, it means fear in every case. And it behooves us rather to direct it than to dissect it 
So let's get into the core and the kernel of the matter. We may accept the language of Scripture as it is written, or we may devise little convenient loopholes in order to slip through and present to the world a more pleasing deity than the one presented in Scripture. I think it's time we take the God of Scripture and proclaim him with force and delight and not try to explain him away and make him more palatable to fickle human tastes. He's a God who not only regards fear as good, but he demands it as the first response of sincere devotion. I'll try to make it as plain as the Lord made it when he said this, do not fear those who kill the body. Now that means other men, right? I mean, there's a lot of people can kill each other, other things can kill people. He says, don't fear those Don't fear him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul, he says. We might say then that fear of man is cowardice and fear of God is true courage. See what I did there? And each of these distinctions comes to us In their truest form, there's a famous statement from Stonewall Jackson. I hope you've heard it. If not, you heard it now. Stonewall Jackson, the great Confederate general, people still study his tactics to, uh, you know, study, those who study war still study him as one of the great tacticians. And he said to one of his officers one time, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. Now, you got to imagine Stonewall Jackson with his beard, you know, sitting there on his horse, and the captain's worried that maybe things are going to go bad. He says, they might go bad, but there's no point in fearing it, is what he's saying. And then he says, God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter when it may overtake me. And then he said, that's the way all men should live, and then all men would be brave. Pretty awesome understanding. And so the soldier offers his men this theory, and then he adds this application. He said, duty is ours. Consequences are God's. That's a man who has really planted the notion of sovereignty in his mind and heart, isn't it? And it seems to me the generals hit upon the essential distinctions of godly fear. Surely Jackson, renowned for his love of Scripture, was aware of the following example of this approach in battle from the Scriptures. And I do want to tell you, shortly after he made the statement, he was wounded by friendly fire. I'm right about that, right? He was wounded by friendly fire and died a few days later. Someone shot him accidentally, and he died. I trust that Old Stonewall was ready to meet God because he said that's his concern as a soldier, to be always ready when death can be around the corner. But surely he must have known. He had a great understanding of of Scripture. He must have known this story of Jonathan, Saul's son, who said to his armor-bearer, let's go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised, the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so... Saul, or rather Jonathan, with this understanding of sovereignty, took his armor bearer, his his trusted lieutenant, and he said, let's go after this larger force of men. Um, Sometimes you just take a risk and throw it all on the sovereignty of God, and that's what 
Jonathan did that day, although if you're careful in your reading, you'll see he really did hear from God on the subject. He says, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So we're two, we'll go against the many and see what happens. And so the two set out in battle against many of the Philistines, and then we read this. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And the first slaughter with jo- which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men, First Samuel tells us. This is the consequence of fearing God only. The fear of God subsumes every other natural fear, and so courage is the natural consequence of the fear of God. You wonder where real courage comes from? Well, I think old Stonewall Jackson put it right out there for us. It comes from the fear of God. Now, surely there's a difference between fighting in bloody battles and living everyday life. Presumably there's some difference. But I would argue that in Scripture, as in life, one may be a metaphor for the other. Have you ever felt, as I do from time to time, that life is difficult to endure? I'm sure you have. People have even said to me, how are you doing this morning? Life is hard. Life is difficult. That's why we, those who fear God, come before him to plead for him to be in it with us. We don't always know why God puts us through a trial. It seems to me, as you get older and you can look back, though, you tend to see reasonable ways or, or reasonable reasons why God would have put you all through all those things that he did. And it does seem to unravel over time. Um, but there's a difference between fighting in a bloody battle and living everyday life. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said he became a mercenary in the um, over, war overseas in Spain in his lifetime, in the early 1900s, and he said something to the, to the effect that if every man could go to war, he would have a sort of a microcosm of seeing all of life because all of the trials and fears of life are compressed into those hours on the battlefield. So who's not felt from time to time that life is difficult to endure, even dangerous to endure? We go from one challenge to the other, it seems. I've often felt that life is like fighting with a dragon. And life's little victories are like wounding the dragon, but not killing him, and leaving him just enough strength to go and lick his wounds and come back and afflict you another time. And it seems to me like that's how life is. And so the little battles of our life come round again and again and demand our courage to face each one of them as they arise. And so life is full with many struggles. And so the psalmist tells us life is full with many labors as well. When you eat the labor of your hands, he goes right into it, eating labor. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. There's something about work, about human effort, about earning your way through life that makes us happy. It gives us a sense of well-being. And I hope we don't lose that, particularly not among the people of God. I should point out at the outset that the Hebrew word for happy in this, in this verse is the same as the Hebrew word for blessed at the end of the last psalm. And though the words happy and blessed aren't truly 
synonyms, they're not truly identical in their usage, we may conclude that happiness is the product of blessedness. You know, some of the early translations of the Beatitudes, when it says, when it says uh, blessed are those who are pure in heart, blessed are the meek, some of the early translations say happy instead of blessed. Happy is the man uh, who is pure of heart. Happy are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. The word has been used interchangeably in our language for many centuries. So it seems happiness is the product of being blessed by God. And blessedness, though it doesn't proceed from obedience, because a lot of times we're blessed even when we're disobedient, like blessed with salvation when we hadn't done one thing worthy of it, right? But blessedness pleads for obedience. The new life in us, the fear of God that's placed in us, pleads within our souls to now act obediently, even though formerly we did not, And so fear goes to obedience, that is walking in his ways, as we've said. Obedience goes to labor, and labor to happiness. We labor because it's a command of God. And so he says, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. And so I've entitled the sermon, You Shall Be Happy. It's amazing to me the implication here. They didn't have to explain so many things in their time as we do in ours. Like if they understood that some people are male and some are female. Today, there's a lot of confusion about simple things. They understood work is good and it contributes to your well-being and your personal dignity. They didn't explain all those things. He just heralded it out there, sang it as a song on the way to worship. So that's the implication. The psalmist never explains that eating is the result of honest labor. He doesn't think he has to do that. It's like, everyone knows that. Let's sing about it. (laughs) He simply expects that the reader, or friends, the singer of the song, recognizes the fact as common sense and mutual experience. You know, I've renamed common sense. I hope it catches on. It's just called sense now. It's not common anymore. Used to be common, but now it's just sense. Don't you have any sense? Don't say to your kids, don't you have common sense? And they say, yeah, I do. <laughs> I have the same sense that all these other buffoons have in the world around me. <laughs> and so then there's an exchange there. There's an exchange of labor for abundance. Of labor for abundance. That's how it works, and he expects that there's mutual experience in life about that so he doesn't feel the need to you know make an outline and preach a sermon on just just sing it if you labor with your hands you shall be happy he says and he concludes that well-being our happiness is connected with lifelong human effort if we go back to the beginning we'll find that as adam and eve tended the garden of eden right They tended the garden before sin entered the world. They were out there just tending, right? Very idyllic situation. But then they, and they sinned. And the Lord said, well, now you will toil in the garden and work by the sweat of your brow. And unfortunately, that's still where we are. That hasn't changed. I know all about the sweat of the brow. That's why in the 80s, they invented these headbands. Nobody wears those anymore. Um, They toiled in another garden after sin entered the world. And so because of sin, tending becomes toiling, and toiling is effort, and effort is labor. 
And what's difficult about labor is that it has uncertain outcomes, doesn't it? We may be successful at it and be profitable, or we may be unsuccessful and rue the day of toil. And I can tell you, I've lived through both extremes, and I still do. Sometimes the same amount of effort over here produces a lot less than it produced in your memory back here when you expended the effort. And it's just the way it is sometimes. But there's a certain sweetness when the labor is over. When you come home from the long day of work and this psalm is about the Christian home and the blessedness of it. And if I do anything today, I want to make this point. There's a certain sweetness in the cessation of our labors, whether they've been profitable or unprofitable. There's a certain sweetness about it that a person could not experience if he had not labored. So choose labor over laziness, and you'll see the good of it. And I equate the... I choose labor versus laziness because the Proverbs do that all the way through, right? For in this sin-cursed world, we'll always labor and toil. It's our lot. Remember this simple axiom. I made this up while I was writing it. Weeds always come back. Everybody say it with me, hallelujah. No, weeds always come back, right? Anybody have a garden? Anybody weed? Karen was out weeding the island the other day. They just always come back. And you're not allowed to use Roundup anymore because you'll die. But um, I use it still. I'm like Stonewall Jackson. Don't care. Just give me the roundup. But uh, (laughs) weeds always grow back. I detest the act of weeding, but I'm never dismayed at the result of it. You know, I get out there among the tomatoes. It's a good life, just me and the tomatoes, the way God meant it to be. And I'm out there and I'm pulling the weeds by hand because you really can't get them all with the thing because you'll hit the tomato. And I'm out there. And it's July, and I'm sweating away, and there's dirt and sweat. But when you're done, it looks so good. I've had people come over and go, boy, there's not one weed in your garden. I'm like, should have seen it yesterday. Should see it next week. It'll be the same. I detest the act of weeding, but I'm never dismayed at the result of it. If I were a better man, I would revel in both. And I'm telling you, that's what you should do. And then he goes in verse 3, your wife. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. If you fear the Lord, if you labor in the field, if you have have abundance at your table, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Friends, the man is the merciful head of the house, and the wife is the loving heart of the house. And that's how it is, and that's how it should be. And that's how it is in your homes. And that's how it is in my home. A fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. I can see people go, I hate olives. <laughs> we got to get a different taste palette in the church today. American food has, has really distorted a lot of things. But I'm going to give some culinary tips too as we go through this. I really am. Um, And so the psalmist enumerates the blessings of the fear of God in the labor of our hands. And still, he does not feel the need to explain. For him, the connection is obvious. 
And if this psalm was all we had of the written word, we'd be tempted to see this connection as the uninterrupted state of affairs through every of life's trial and torments. Imagine if this was all we had. Yet we know to temper the promise with other assurances from the Scripture, right? Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you will have peace, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. But what stays in my mind is, I'm in the world and there's tribulation here. So everything the psalmist says is true, it's just it's not uninterruptedly true. And so it seems that there'll be times when our blessings will follow our devotion, and there are times that they will not. I wonder, though, if the promise of domestic blessings are more resilient than we presume given the trials and tribulations of daily living in a sin-cursed world. Is the psalmist right and we're just not thankful enough or observant enough? Could that be the case? Consider this. The church of God has suffered many defeats. And it would seem that we suffer some of them as we speak. Now you know I've stood in this pulpit on several occasions of late to warn you that there are forces in society that would persecute us and take our liberties from us. You've heard me say it. It is a reality that hasn't changed. But the blessings the psalmist talks about happen in the midst of that. They didn't go away. That's part of the role of Christians in the world, to endure those things with faith and with dignity intact. But the psalmist reminds us that even though the daily labors seem to afflict us, they also bless us. It's our labors that provide our homes. It's our home that provides a respite from the toil. And in the home, there resides a wife. And from the wife, children. And they're all fed from the table that the labor also provided. And here's the best part. There's no guilt in the transaction. For the laborer is worthy of his wage, the Lord said. And that means worthy in the sight of God. Friends, day-to-day laboring is difficult. It's even dangerous, as we've spoken about today and prayed about. But such are the consequences of original sin. But in Christ we enjoy the best blessings in spite of the toiling and the sweating and the fretting that we do in life. Let me explain, friends. Governments and governors come and go. But in every season, the blessings of God remain the same. And if you're tempted to believe that one man or one believer is blessed and another is not, you'd do well to recognize the simple blessings are the real ones. In other words, the ones we all share are the real blessings. The Bible's very explicit on this. So the real blessings are the simple domestic blessings around the table with your wives and your families. And if you don't have wives and families, you have friends. And you have brothers and sisters in Christ that you fellowship with. And the family blessing extends to you. And I'll get to that. These are the real blessings. The other blessings are the artificial ones. Well, I, you may not have sailing yachts or lavish furnishings, but the, bless, the best blessings are the ones that endure through all times. You may think that you're the importance of your job or the size of your wallet or the... Um, 
extent of your vocational success rather provides you with solace, but the scripture says it's honest labor in the fear of God. Friends, that's called the Protestant work ethic. And it's called that because there was a, a work ethic before the time of Protestantism, but it was said that only certain work is honorable. Priestly work, right? Scriptural work, big, important, spiritual stuff. Not the stuff you're doing. Not the guy who comes around in England and sells the peat so you can put it in your furnace and, and heat it, or the guy that cleans up after the horses in London or something, right? That's not, that's not good, honest work. The, the, the Scripture says it is. Honest labor is a blessing, no matter what it is. It's the Protestant work ethic. That's why the Protestant countries of the world are the most prosperous. Go look and see if I'm not right. Remember the wisdom of Solomon. This is what I'm getting to. He wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, the prophet of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. Friends, we all eat the same potatoes. The president doesn't get the best potatoes. We all get the potatoes. So take from this that the simple things, the real blessings of life are the same for all. The king in the palace, he must rely on the produce of the field, just as the farmer in the cottage relies on it. The only difference is we wash our own produce and the king has someone to wash it for him. That's really the difference, right? But the lesson goes further. Solomon writes, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver anyway. He who loves abundance will not be satisfied with abundance. This also is vanity. In other words, it's a waste of effort. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with, his, uh, with their eyes? And listen what he says. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. I don't know exactly why that is, but that's what he says, Right? I guess you're always afraid, is it well guarded? <laughs> is my storehouse well guarded? Keep in mind that the writer of these words was the wealthiest man of his time. He knew a little something about abundance. And so he writes this. And I read this a lot, and I've read it at your homes when I've had dinner with you. Nothing is better for a man. I just say it again. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy the good of his labor. And it doesn't matter who's in office. That simple blessing is there. And he said, this also I saw was from the hand of God. So maybe the psalmist's simple domestic blessings are more resilient than we thought at first. Maybe we're just upset that we don't like the politics of the moment or certain aspects of society that have come upon us right now that the pundits have got us all angry about all the time. But you'll say to me, you'll plead, Pastor, are there not times in life when the blessings that should be the result of honest labor, labor rather, and reverence for holy things does not yield the result that the psalmist sings about? Well, my short answer would be yes, there are times like that. But I have to say, I'm never forgetful of at least one biblical example where these domestic blessings of life did not elude the children of Israel, even while they were oppressed and in servitude to another nation. Remember the Jews in Egypt. Now we read in Scripture about the taskmasters, remember? They're making the bricks. No straw, it's still got to make the bricks, right? 
Life was difficult. Life was hard in Egypt. You weren't your own master. You weren't autonomous. But even as slaves, slaves in Egypt, the children of Israel had their own dwellings. Remember? They painted blood on the doorposts and lintels. They had their own places. If they lived in government houses, they would have said, get that blood off there. That's not your house. That didn't happen. They still had the domestic blessings, even in that horrendous time of history. God was blessing his people, even in Egypt. Friends, they were there 430 years. And they multiplied. There were millions of them. In fact, that's why they were afflicted. If you remember, Pharaoh got worried that there was too many. If they ever rebelled, hell would break loose. So they had their own dwellings. They had their own wives, their families, their devotional habits. There apparently was no law against slaughtering and eating hundreds, even thousands of lambs in a single night's festival. You know what I'm talking about. The Passover. Everyone picked a lamb. Imagine millions of people, probably hundreds of thousands of families, all slaughtering a lamb at the same time at twilight and painting their dwellings with the blood. They had freedom. They had farms. They had abundant food, apparently. They didn't say go out and find a lamb. They said go among your flock and pick the best lamb. They had flocks. We don't think of it that way, but it's clearly that way, isn't it? So they had toil with it, but the most basic of God's blessings, the domestic ones, the ones that attend us in our quiet hours, were there even in Egypt. If we're careful to remember, so were such things with them in Babylon, in Babylonian captivity. I read it to you last week. Jeremiah wrote, while you're there in Babylon where the Lord took you, he said, build houses. Build houses and dwell in them. Now, there's a certain measure of freedom and prosperity implicit in that command, isn't there? Build houses and dwell in them. We know you don't like it. We know that Babylonian politics isn't your thing. We know that Babylonian religion isn't your thing, right? But he said, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Friends, pray for national peace because in national peace, we all have peace. And it's the command of God. And so the words, friends, of the psalm, the promises of the psalmist are more resilient than we might have thought. God puts us where he'll have us. He didn't deny they were in captivity, but he still said to them, there are blessings here in the land if you pray for them. He's not slack in his provisions. He put labor there. He puts fear in our hearts. And our labors are toilsome. He doesn't deny it, but the blessings and benefits of honest labor and devotion attend the faithful, even in the most inauspicious of circumstances. Do you know what inauspicious is? I could say it's the opposite of auspicious, but that wouldn't be very helpful, would it? Um, Inauspicious means things not contributing to success. Even when it's very hard to be successful, they still were successful enough to have the simple blessings that the psalmist says are the real blessings. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise the simple blessings of life. They are yours, and they're yours through all seasons, apparently. 
Verse 4, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. He says this fear thing again. He's doubling down on this. Fear and blessing attend the people of God. And so, as I say, he doubles down on the promise. He's enumerated the promised blessings and the requisite effort on the part of the believer. And so his song regales the happy state of the believer. You shall be happy in Babylon, in Egypt, wherever you are. And if you remember, when they came out of Egypt, right, they went into the wilderness, God gave them manna to eat, they started despising the manna because it's, you know, maybe you would do that too if it's all you had every day to eat. But remember what they longed for? Leeks and onions. Do you remember that? They longed for leeks and onions. In other words, the produce, the good things in the time of their captivity. They were longing for things in freedom that they had when they were captive. We tend to do that. We are a bunch of whiners in the final analysis, but... So fear and blessing attend the people of God in all circumstances. And he gives us a list of these things. His list begins with food. When you eat, he writes. Now, I've often told you this. Food and drink are very spiritual things. Do you believe me? You think, oh, those are fleshy things. You shouldn't shouldn't eat fancy food. It's not good. It's not good for you. I used to have a friend, she was very frugal, and she, a Christian should eat for strength. I eat for pleasure. It's one of the best times of the day. So food and drink come with godly behavior. They come with walking in faith. Recall that when angels visit men, they want to be fed. It's very spiritual. Remember Abraham, when the three angels came to him? He said this, and I'm quoting from Genesis, he said, I'll bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. He said to angels. Can you imagine the angel saying, no, don't, uh, don't bring me any, any carbs. I'm, I'm, on a reducing, I'm on a reducing diet at the time. And by the way, that, that veal that you're preparing, this, it's high in cholesterol and you've got a little problem with that. No. He's, I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your heart. So Abraham hurried to the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make some cakes. So that's what I do. I see someone pull up in the driveway. I run to Karen. Get out the kneading bowl. Get some stuff ready. They're here. Who's here? The angels. You know, Abraham, we're told, um, serve strangers because unwittingly they may be angels. So you don't know. Maybe you have served angels. So Abraham goes on. The bread, the meal, that wasn't enough. He said, quickly, make ready... uh, Oh, Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, and gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Food is a very spiritual thing, and you have it as a blessing. If you fear God, if you labor in dignified toil, food and drink are spiritual things. They are the blessings of God. Be thankful for them. And friends, a little pastoral advice. Shut out the world for a while and sit at your tables and talk and pray and eat the blessings of God. And don't forget to bring the Word into the mix. Open the Scriptures and read from them. You know, 
The martyrs and reformers died for your freedom to read the scripture in your own language, in your own house, to your own family. It's a thoroughly Protestant thing. Do it. And then pray together as the family. And let me tell you, the food will taste better. And it will multiply. People come. They'll be be extra. And know that you're in the very moment with God. Note right there, you are enjoying the blessings of God that will endure in all types of situations. You're with God. You're with your family or your friends and the simple blessings of life. And yet there are even greater gifts than food and drink. Wives are also spiritual things. What an awesome thing is a Christian wife. Does anyone disagree? One, two, three. Okay, we have a few. Um, And so we read from Solomon again. Who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. You know, Karen not only handles the finances, she handles my prescriptions. (laughs) I could go broke and even die if she did the wrong thing. So you trust the wife. The man trusts the wife. The heart of of her husband safely trusts her so he'll have no lack of gain. There's a blessing in the wife, you see. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She willingly works with her hands. She's like the merchant ships. Imagine saying that. Honey, you're like a merchant ship to me. But you know, I remember when my mother used to come home from shopping. She was a teacher and she taught all day. But on certain days, I think it was once a week, she'd come home after shopping. And I equated my mother with all that new food that was there. When I saw mom, that's how my kids are. The other day, Karen was standing there, and Joe was standing there. He was making some breakfast scrambled eggs. He goes, you're right here. Why am I doing this? He says to, he says to his mother. And see, she laughs. That's why they continue to do it. She's like the merchant ship. She brings food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maid servants. She considers a field and buys it. She's a realtor. You know what the name of her company is? Century One. She con- if you have to explain a joke, it's no good. So She considers a field and buys it from her profits. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She extends her hand to the poor. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. And then the writer says, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, he writes, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. That's the Christian wife. That's the so-called Proverbs 31 girl. I hear people say all the time, oh, I could never be the Proverbs 31 girl. Let me tell you something. My wife is the Proverbs 32 girl. And there is no Proverbs 32. She excelled them all. 
And let's not forget the blessings of children. They are blessings. They're like olive plants. I know in our society, the blessing of olive groves and olives and olive oil and all the products of that wonderful plant were part and parcel of nearly every aspect of ancient society. I don't think we readily realize how important the olive was in that society. And he compares children to olives. And so the wife is the fruitful vine, and the children are the plants that sprout from the vine. They are the produce of the marriage. They are freshness to our countenances. They anointed their faces with oil, if you remember. They are the flavoring of our lives. They are the oil in our lamps and the profit of godly marriages. Children are good. Have some. Now, in that society, olives were used for flavorings for cooking, for ointments, for cosmetics, for cleansing, for perfume, for medicine, and even for tanning and softening leather. Apart from what the olive plant provided, ancient society would have conceivably been a dreary, tasteless place. But it wasn't. Friends, if you're you're not a good cook, take this one piece of advice from me, culinary advice, all right? Put some olive oil in a pan. Well, turn on the stove. Put some olive oil in a pan. Put some garlic in that pan. And whatever follows in after that will be more satisfying and delicious, not to mention healthy and nutritious, than what you would have otherwise had. Olive oil. It's a Christian thing. You should have plenty on hand. (laughs) To compare children with olive plants is high praise indeed. Now, for those among the brotherhood who have not been blessed with wives and children, there are promises here as well. For you are still a son or a daughter, you have families from which you came, you're someone else's olive plant, right? And so you're the olive plants around the fruitful vine of your own mothers. You're the crown of glory of your own fathers. And here's the best part. You're also part of an immortal brotherhood because you're a member of God's church. From the psalmist David who wrote in another place, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What an awesome thing. Now, most of us have been around a while as Christians. I've been around a while. We've had, maybe from time to time, some unpleasant, ununified experiences in the churches. And we had that in our church here. And I can tell you, not since 2006... And I remember there was just disagreements and unsettled feelings about a number of things. As you're developing a new church, all kinds of disagreements can come up, right? And, um, and that passed. And some people went out from us, went other places, joined with other groups. And I remember one day talking about it with, uh, well, with Uncle John. And, you know, it seemed so... You know, I can say as as a pastor what Paul said to the Corinthian church, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I want everybody here. You know what I mean? Everybody is loved and valued here in the congregation. I don't want people to go, but people go. And there's not much you can do about it. But I remember John said to me, he said, that spirit 
of division has gone out from us. Not here anymore. We felt it. And we felt it. And so behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There were fewer of us, but we had that blessing. And then he goes on. It's oil again. It's like the precious oil upon the head. Running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Every brother and sister in Christ who dwells in unity with a loving fellowship has their own set of promises and their own contributions to make to that society. You also have many families with which to join yourself to share the simple and joyous and abundant blessings of God. And then he closes with verses 5 and 6 and he says, The Lord bless you out of Zion and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, you may see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And so he gives a benediction here of peace upon Israel of continued blessing, seeing the good in their national life. So, as we read this, Zion can be taken as the church or it can be taken as the nation to which we've been placed by God. I see no reason not to presume that both things are there, the church and the nation. When he invokes peace, I see a national blessing and patriotic love of country. I've spoken of this before. It's not only a good thing, it's a command of God to love and to contribute to the nation, to the country where he has put you. Patriotism is a thoroughly Christian thing. It's a good and biblically endorsed thing to love the country of your own nativity, the country that feeds you, the country that defends you, and the country you're leaving to your children. Now, we have many arguments with our fellow citizens and political parties of our nation, and I know that, and I still believe that most people desire this, the same thing as we do with regard to family and children and religious devotion. I urge you not to let the noise of the noisy dissuade you from seeing the blessing of God, even now. Our homeland is at peace. I know that there are forces who would gladly disrupt that peace, but I trust in the promises of God even in the political realm. And national peace is a great blessing. It's the blessing of God. Thank Him for it. And remember, friends, our children, our little olive plants, they have to live here. They'll desire the same blessings that we enjoyed in our time. And I'm not saying that we should capitulate one iota in the arena of ideas. We're still a free speech nation. We still speak up. And it's good that we do. And it's endowed by our Creator. We ought to resist an evil path so far as we have power to do so. But in all things, friends, peace is still a great virtue. Love of the homeland remains our fervent duty. And devotion to the one true God is our earnest, earnest desire and our one true hope. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name we pray, let us internalize the concepts 
of the subjects spoken about by the psalmist in this beautiful poem, this song, O Lord. I know as we listen to them being proclaimed that we realized that we are truly blessed in all things and through all seasons. And so we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.